You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if the show was an advent calendar, this week would be a chocolate penguin. Better than a chocolate starfish. (laughs) Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And greetings to another, another show of film info brought to you with love. Because that's what we do here on the film file. Well, lots of nonsense, but, <laughs> but a ton of love as well. <laughs> a whole lot of love, as a, as a certain uh, Led Zeppelin would have said. Yes, uh, what a week. Um, I'm on a week off, and I'm enjoying every second of it because I'm doing oh, absolutely excellent. nothing except for watching oh, films man, and TV. I'm so envious. Oh. I'm so envious. Just great to have a little I really chill need out it. I just need, I need that in my life right now. Well, I, I kind of needed it after, on my last few days before leaving um, work for a week, they put up some new posters for films coming up, such as Ferrari and Beekeeper. And both those posters have the words Sky Original on them. And it kind of yeah. like shook me to the core. It's like, well, come on. Have Sky just been lucky and paid for something decent? Or has, uh, has something gone terribly wrong with Michael Mann's Ferrari? Do you ever used to do that thing, Secret Santa, where, you know, you put names into... Uh, into a box, you pull one out, and I think that's what they've done. They've they've done one of those grab bag things. They oh look, we've got Ferrari blind auctions. Awesome. They, they, they just get a big box of random films and they don't know what they've got, and it's like junk, junk, <laughs> junk, junk. This one's not bad, junk, junk. Yeah, uh, Secret Santas. Yeah, they're doing one at work at the moment, but I never get involved in them because, and this happens every time that I see the Secret Santa done. You're supposed to be. You got everyone's names in a hat or a box, or whatever. Someone draws it out, and that's their that's their person to get the present for. But yeah. what inevitably happens is they say, oh, you can draw it out three up to three times and choose your favourite. Well, why do a well, secret that make sense. It's supposed to just be a blind thing. And then you get the ones who are like, oh, I don't like this person, but I'm stuck with them. And they'll go around and find out from other people who they've got, and eventually narrow down no. all the people who haven't got them, and swap. Now, if you just want to buy a present for a particular person... Buy a present for a particular person. Don't go secret Santa. Don't try to make it a thing. So I always get refused to get involved because it just sets me off, as you can see, on a little rant. <laughs> I uh, I did a secret Santa for work, and uh, I've forgotten who I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> I've got an awkward conversation to have tomorrow. I, I have forgotten who it is. The one year that I did get involved in the secret Santa because I was forced to by the boss, the, the lad who I had as the secret Santa, he liked the Beatles, so I bought him a Beatles calendar, and I thought that's a great present. And we sacked him before before Christmas came round. Oh, so God. I got myself. So you got a nice got Beatles, calendar. A Beatles calendar for the year. <laughs> hey, you know what my Christmas present is? It came early. What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? Well, apart from your ATT Walker, <laughs> <laughs> I gifted Andy uh, an ATT. Is it an ATT Walker? A- an at all terrain armored transport. I gifted Andy uh, uh, an Atat Walker, much to the chagrin of his of his wife, because <laughs> it was pretty big, pretty big, and he's now taking up his living room. Um, anyway, uh, my my uh, early Christmas present was Doctor Who. The yes, giggle. wasn't that a gift? I, yeah, I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. I had such a great time with it. I've not read anything post uh, the show going out because I have a life. Uh, and, and secondly, I don't want other people sort of peeing all over the show that I've just enjoyed. But I did enjoy it. 
there is some of the negativity out there from the fan base who seem to think that they're bigger fans of the franchise than even the writers or the creators. And, you know, the, the controversial new, re new regeneration, which was a bi-generation, where he split into two, it's never been done before. Doesn't mean yeah. that it can't be part of canon. Doesn't mean that it can't be part of law. But there's a handful of people out there saying, this is ridiculous. They, they've destroyed the regeneration process. It's like, mm, have they, though? Yeah. Because hasn't he in the past actually regenerated from a hand? So he's had two doctors. You've got the Metacrisis doctor, which is living in an alternate dimension. This isn't something that has just come out of the blue. The signs have been there since the early days of Russell T. Davis that this could be an option at some point. And isn't it just nice to have something a little different and give a chance for another doctor to finally rest? Yeah, and I think it, from, a, from a writing point of view, killing off Tennant, who's clearly, clearly loved. You know, this, the, the opening episode got 7 million views, which you know, a Doctor Who plummeted, sadly, but plummeted recently and it's back on top worldwide doing ridiculously well yeah and people love Tennant I don't think there's any mileage in seeing David Tennant die again or no. regenerate again because we've done it we've had it and 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 clearly people love it for so many he is their doctor their entry point and um we get to keep him yep there, there was a rumor we mentioned it on the show that there was going to be a spin-off called uh, Partners in Time. I, I think we kind of poo-pooed it, but maybe th there was some uh, uh, mileage behind that. I think I, I don't particularly want them to do a spin-off because I don't want them having two Doctors running con concurrently with each other because I think it'll just... People will then be like, oh, well, he's not as good as him and he's not as good as him and it just becomes a battle between the two when they're supposed to be part of the same franchise. But I, I think it leaves the door open for a multi-Doctor specials every now and then. And it'd be great to see Tennant yeah. just reprise his role every now and then. I thought it was a nice, unique, fresh way of taking it. I, I know it was a bit silly, but come on. Isn't Doctor it's Who Doctor always Who. a bit silly? And uh, Neil Patrick Harris was having a joyous time on set, was wasn't great, he? wasn't he? He <laughs> was great. He was uh, just so everything that Neil Patrick Harris is. Uh, charming, uh, a uh, vivacious on screen. A, a real showman, yeah, especially doing the Spice Girls dance sequence <laughs> how to make that also terrifying and talking of terrifying this is one of those episodes when i had both child and other half hiding behind a cushion can you guess which scene that was um ooh, puppet the puppet babies. yeah the puppet babies yes that was proper partner, creepy. Uh, uh, absolutely looking away Boy, did I have some fun with it because I've got a, a puppet version of Pee Wee Herman. Did I have some fun <laughs> later on putting a child into therapy? But yeah, yeah, that was that was old style creepy Doctor Who. And, and and you mentioned this last week. It kind of covered all the sort of areas we've had. Some yeah, there's loads of references to um, past Who through the decades. So yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a great time with it. Fantastic 60th anniversary. And again, those Disney production values. Yeah, shine through. Don't over, oh, don't overdo it. Yeah, uh, just add something. It's uh, everyone was saying, oh, it's going to be like the Mandalorian. Every shot will be an effect shot. It was still kind of subtle. It wasn't mm. that much different than what we would. Yeah, I remember the cloud base uh, unit headquarters. Yeah, uh, from a couple of years. Well, I can say a couple of years back, fifteen years ago now. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I, I had a, I had a great old time with it. Took me back to being a kid, and that's the important bit. You know what? This is a kid's show. 
Yeah. After all. So, yeah. come on, guys. See it through the prism of, of a child. Yep. And with, Doctor Who is one of the only shows that we all in this house sit together as a family to watch. Yeah, us too. It's not, you know, there's shows that me and me and the wife and my daughter will sit and watch together like Lucifer. There's shows that me and my sons will watch together. There's very rarely something comes along that we all sit sit in perfect silence and watch and enjoy what's on screen. No yeah. chatter, yeah. no gossip. We're just all caught up in it. And Doctor Who, for as long as it keeps going, that's our family moment. Every every time it's on air. Can't wait for Christmas Day to see because um, that th- those that short time that we had with Shooty Gatwa towards the end of the episode as well. I love him. I love yes. the I love the take that he's going for there. It's a, it's a jolly like looking at the best and like vibing with everything kind of approach, and I like that. It's a such a different Doctor. Oh, I can't wait to see this. It should always, always. It's a shame that he's got a costume people. because he should just be running around for the next few episodes in just a shirt, tie, and underpants. <laughs> yeah, the first time we've ever seen a, a doctor in pants, and he likes tighty whities <laughs> It's tighty whities uh, but no, it, it was fun. I love the fact that the the secondary TARDIS that he creates by knocking it into two, it's got a jukebox in it, and I think that's enough of a signifier of what kind of doctor is going to be played. Yeah. In the fact that he's got a, a, a jukebox in the TARDIS control room. Well, we'll see where he goes from here. Um, next thing, Christmas Day. Yes, roll on Christmas Day. We'll we'll chat about it after, because we're, we're planning up to Christmas, aren't we, right now for the show? Yeah, and then we'll probably take a couple of weeks break, because uh, Christmas and New Year it. both fall at the weekends, which uh, kind of stymies any plans that we have for getting together to do stuff. We might have we might do what we've done in the past, where we record some content fresh to pop into yeah. the bonus episodes. And uh, for those who've been watching the new YouTube channel, will know that I've always I've always got extra reviews that I'm dropping into there. So I'll probably have some extra reviews that I could drop into the Christmas and New Year shows anyway. Great. So that leads us quite nicely to talk about uh, this week, and of course, every week we set our social challenge. The post was. Other than a Christmas movie, great films are set in snow. I've got a thing about snow, in, in especially in horror films. Uh, there was a, a, a film of Emily Blunt called Windchill. Have you seen that? I've heard Ghost of it. I've not seen it. Great little movie and set in snow. As, as soon as I knew it was set in snow, I was in. That was <laughs> my raison d'etre. I just have a thing about thrillers and uh, uh, horror movies set in snow. It doesn't have to be any of those, as you're going to tell me. So we've had a handful of responses on this over on Spotify. We've had Stephen Young Sculptor, who says Krampus, which is a great snowy yep. film, and it's Christmassy too. And another Christmas film would be Young Sherlock Holmes. He mentions Young Sherlock Holmes quite frequently. I think he's dropping should, hints that he wants us to deep dive it. it. Uh, especially the end scene with the sleigh and the reveal. Ben, who's Spidey Anonymous, Always The Shining. Been saying for yeah, ages that, should, that this should count as a Christmas movie anyway. Snowy, full of red, and it's all about family. And yeah, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you have that. The Shining is now a festive favourite. Um, it's all about bringing the family together and murdering them. D- does that make <laughs> Die Hard 2 then more of a Christmas movie? Yes. Because there's, there's snow than Die yes. Hard. Very much so. Very much so. Unleash the dogs of war. <laughs> Over on Mastodon. Josie 8, Partial Snow, It's a Wonderful Life. 
Bedford Falls yeah. in the snow scene is really quite nice. Yes, have to agree. Andrew Smith, author, let the right one in. One of the most mesmerizing movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Swedish vampire kids, achingly beautiful and poignant. What were the chances? And Aussie, God's Country is excellent. Oh, good choice. Not seeing God's Country. And also Salty Red Popcorn puts forward the suggestion of Cliffhanger, which is the first one that comes to mind for a snowy movie without the usual Christmas trimmings. And yes, got a lot of love for that, as anyone who listened to our deep dive earlier this year will know. I threw into the mix clearly the thing, but also the grey. Yeah, the grey is the a last good Liam Neeson movie. As well. Yeah, I mean, promoted completely wrong because it looked like he was just going to punch wolves all the yeah. way through it. And it turns out that the, the, the end credits come up before that happens anyway. Um, but a great little exploration of, of loss, grief and finding. Survival. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a great film. Over on X Twitter, Lazy Gaga said Call of the Wild. Craig Ooh, yeah. Wright's tech writer um, echoes your choice of The Thing as well as Everest and Touching the Void. Oh, Touching the Void, that's a good film. And Eric Malcolm, Jeremiah Johnson, Fargo, Django oh. Unchained, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, A Simple Plan, etc., etc. I think you've just won the internet for me. Yeah, that's it. Internet Award is on its way over by Carrier Pigeon right now to Eric Malcolm. Over on Facebook, on my own page, It's a Wonderful Life, Little Women, Dr. Zhivago and Groundhog Day uh, were submitted by Mumsy, Patricia Meekin. Lee Leary, Die Hard 2. So it is more of a Christmas film than Die Hard 1. Uh, one that made me chuckle, Al Bestall, Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. And I actually found a gif, which is him sat in front of the mountain of cocaine, but it's been built into a snowman, and it's the most perfect gif that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you need to post it. Post it on our, uh, our socials. I think so. And over on our own Facebook page, the Film File Facebook page, Owen Cooper, Fargo is one that comes to mind instantly. Yeah. Another is The Revenant, even though Leo should have won the Oscar for the year prior for With the Wolf of Wall Street. And even though it's not fully set in the snow, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What a great that, that beautiful, beautiful snow scene where they make uh, snow angels. Uh, and Lindsay Story, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Love that one. Don't know if this would be allowed in, but Edward Scissorhands. Yes, that's definitely allowed. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely allowed. Uh, the Shining and Misery. Got to get the horror choices in. Uh, Misery is yeah. a good call. Uh, we've had that on the deep dive list for quite some time and eventually we will get around to doing it. Uh, so that's all the ones that we've had from the socials. My choices, Hateful Eight makes it in there. I've got a lot oh, yeah. of love for that film. I think it's a beautiful looking film. One of one of Tarantino's finest. You know, I've never seen it. Empire Strikes Back obviously gets on my list. Yeah. People have already said Fargo. I've got some, I've got some interest in um, Alive, which is the... True story of the yeah. plane crash survivors. Uh, that's yeah. you know, it's it's not a happy job. Uh, apparently, it that's getting remade as well, isn't it? <laughs> yes, a, a, a sort of a, a remake. What? <laughs> <laughs> Dining with friends, <laughs> having a friend for dinner. The cooking instructions. My top pick, Scott Pilgrim. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. It's a constantly snow-swept streets of Toronto, Canada. And for me, Brilliant. that is the perfect snowy film. Thanks, folks. Thanks for sending in uh, your answers and sending them to us rather than anybody else via uh, social. What's the question <laughs> for this week? So in a case of bar humbug, and you've got many to choose from, who is the top 
of your naughty list for the betrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge. Yes, the a Christmas Carol, Christmas doesn't exist really without uh, Scrooge, who, in your humble opinion, played Scrooge the best. Now you've got so many to choose from. Um, George C. Scott, Patrick Stewart, Alistair Sim, Bill Murray. Come on, Bill Murray. But we want to know who your choice of the best Scrooge on screen is. And you do that by... Heading over to social platforms, follow us on there, look out for the question, reply via there. Filmfile UK is our brand moniker on every social platform. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or, I don't know, shout into the wilderness and we might be able to hear you. You never know. Particularly if you live quite close by. That'll help. Which brings us quite nicely to talk about this week's show. What have we got on the film file for you this week? Well, we have reviews of... Wonka that landed on cinemas this weekend. Maestro, which is on a limited cinema release before it drops onto Netflix in just over a week's time. And the final one will be that Sky original that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Genie, which is a, a new adaptation of Bernard and the Genie. We've got a deep dive this week into, we're still going festive with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah. But before any of that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. The box office, we're living in strange days at the moment where Disney couldn't sell their 100th celebration film. Marvels has completely not only dropped out of the box office, but dropped out of cinemas, which leaves us in this grey winter wonderland. Andy, what's the box office? Over in the US, it's The Boy and the Heron that opened in the top spot this weekend, taking 13 million at the US box office. The Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes holds into second place with 9.3 million. Godzilla Minus One is in third place, taking 8.6 million this week. Trolls Band Together in fourth with 6.1 million. And Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, 5.5 million to round off the top five. Here in the UK, Wonka opened this week in the UK and has done a stunning 8.9 million at the UK box office. Wish is still taking in some money, taking 1.1 million from UK audiences. Hunger Games in third place, 961,000 added to its total. Napoleon in fourth place with 951,000. And Saltburn in fifth place with 417,000. Godzilla Minus One, which will be opening in the UK in the coming week, cost approximately $15 million to make and has already worldwide taken $52 million. So The Boy in the Heron has uh, had quite a good start. Uh, oh. it's, it's done pretty strong. I mean, it's not been a okay. particularly overall strong weekend. We're still on that kind of mid midpoint in America where it's going from Thanksgiving over to the Christmas run-up. Next week is when things tend to build up. But um, it's a good, good result for the weekend, for uh, an animated feature that has been critically doing the rounds quite well, but hasn't seemed to have had much of a marketing push in order to get the general public interested. So nice to see it land and find its feet. Let's see if it does it in the UK when it opens here soon. So that's the box office. Let's bring on the news. What we got? Well, let's stay in the world of animation, kind of. We've been talking about this a few times. Coyote versus Acme. The movie that Warner Brothers tried its best to bury for tax reasons, at which they then realized their mistake when everyone in the world went, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? And it's been getting shipped around for buyers. 
Well, the latest reports have Paramount as being the top favourites who will pick it up for distribution. As we've said before, it was initially planned to be scrapped for a 30 million tax write-off. Warner Brothers have been asking up for 70 million for selling it to potential distributors, basically wanting to cover the general cost of making the film. Now, Amazon have shown interest, but they're still yet to place a bid. Netflix and Paramount have both put in offers, and Sony and Apple have no interest in the project and have uh, turned down any plans. But Paramount, as part of their bid, they've said that they will be planning for cinema outing for it, cinema screenings, whereas Netflix will probably make it a Netflix TV exclusive or one week at the cinema before it goes to Netflix. So it's looking like Paramount will be the top favourites in order to distribute it worldwide. It wouldn't be a film file without the latest in casting news, especially when it comes to the big two superhero producers. Uh, Let's start with DC. There's been uh, a little bit of casting. And of course, because it's DC, there's going to be a wee bit of, uh, shall we say, kickback. Controversy. Controversy, that's the word I was looking for from a certain cult. But let's focus on the positive first. So yeah, um, Sean Gunn has been cast to play Maxwell Lord in the DCU. Although it is unsure whether we're going to see him actually appear in Superman Legacy. Apparently his character will be referenced, be it on a newspaper headline or something in the background etc that the plan is for other casting roles for latter projects to be name dropped in the earlier entries in the dcu to build up the world around the heroes over time the character as anyone who saw wonder woman 84 will know and saw pedro pascal in the role has been on screen before and is an evil business tycoon who generally is used as an opponent for wonder woman so this has started the rumor mill speculating that is Wonder Woman planned for this first phase of the DCU because it wasn't on the initial rundown, but it seems ridiculous to have Maxwell Lord being referenced if you're not going to be building up to Wonder Woman's return. You see, my memory of Maxwell Lord, because I've been reading comics for far too long, is when he was the benefactor for the Justice League. Now, after the crisis event, DC relaunched Justice League, and boy, did they do it right. And they made it very, very tongue-in-cheek. J.M. DeMattis, Keith Giffen, uh, my old friend Kevin Maguire on art, and Maxwell Lord was a mysterious billionaire benefactor who put the new Justice League team, not necessarily together, but kind of funded them. And from what I remember, he was uh, he, he wasn't a good guy, but there was a lot of mystery connected to him. And then, of course, yeah. he got Pedro Pascal's version, which was nothing like the Maxwell Lord that I remember. Funny enough, he was drawn to look like Sam Neill. So that would have been perfect casting back in the day. And Gunn himself has implied that Maxwell Lord this time round won't be a villain. Could be the benefactor behind the new Justice League. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see. But there's been a bit of kickback from, well, a certain cult. Does it matter? Do we need to mention it, actually? Could we just know there would be some? I'm going to mention it because this Snyder cult, who are so against James Gunn actually doing something because Snyder's not involved in it, that they like to pull at everything that gets announced and try to make out that James Gunn's somehow lying. And the latest one is this, is like, because James Gunn had said, people who do voices in animation will also play that character on screen. And also, they won't have one actor play multiple roles in live action. They're ignoring the bit which says in live action. And you're saying, oh, so Sean Gunn is going to be voicing Weasel and a few other characters and also going to be on screen as Maxwell Lord. You're a liar. And they're just obsessed with this, like trying to say that he's lying on everything. He's not lied at all because a voice over for whether it's an animated show or a CGI character on a film is not that star being on screen. And that's the whole point that was getting made there. 
But James Gunn is getting fed up of these small, like, handful of morons who jump on his every word in a negative way because he's actually replied this time. And he's not replied, because normally he replies in a kind of, like, jolly but friendly, passive-aggressive kind of way. This time he's very blunt. His tweet back to one person, at jabar8900. It's always name, random numbers at the end. Who had said, not casting one actor to play multiple characters, her. You said that not happening, and Lie Detector shows that. James Gunn's tweeted back, I said, very clearly, actors will generally only be playing one character on screen, and said, in the same response, that for voice actors, it's not the same. Sean, Alan Tudyuk, Maria Bakalova, Steve Agee, etc., all play multiple roles in Creature Commandos. That doesn't mean they won't play different characters on screen. So what's the need you have, and a handful of others, to desperately need to believe I'm lying, that you seem to purposefully ignore certain parts of what I said? And all I've got to say is a huge round of applause for James Gunn for finally calling them out on their crap. Oh, jolly good. About time. I'm getting less and less interested in social media. I'm spending less time there. I do check out threads. I'm, I'm still happy with threads. Though I keep getting sent pictures of ladies half undressed. I still don't quite understand why. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't make my uh, other half very happy, but uh, I have nothing to do with that. I'm, I don't know why my <laughs> algorithm shows me women half undressed, but I, I do find this whole toxicity. And interesting enough, it got it kind of got mentioned in, in Doctor Who last night. Yeah reasons why the attack was happening uh, we've also got rumors and this is pinch of salt corner in an interviews promoting monarch kurt russell has been talking about a potential role that he'd be fascinated to play in the dc universe if james gunn will offer him the part now we know that russell has worked with gunn previously on guardians of the galaxy and he wants to play a similar father figure except this one won't turn out to be a, a living planet. He's got his eyes on Jor-El. If Gunn will offer him the part, he'll be up for it. In his words, yeah, yeah, I'll take on Marlon Brando. I mean, there was something awesome about the way he was just looking around. I don't care that he was looking at his lines. He's crazy great to watch. You know what? We don't know a lot about Jor-El. Maybe there's a version. I've never heard this, so I don't know. James Gunn was a blast to work with, though, so you never know. So he's, he's basically put the feelers out there. And if if James Gunn's been listening to him, which surely he is, surely he'll be thinking now, that'll be a great little bit of casting. Kurt Russell yeah, is Joel I'm there for that. Yeah, watching him in Monarch at the moment. The man has so much screen charisma. Always has. I remember seeing him uh, when he was still a kid on some of those Disney movies and always has had fantastic screen presence. Mm. We need to we need to deep dive Tango and Cash one day. Yes. So jumping over to Marvel, pinch of salt corner, which I'm starting <laughs> to think might not be just a pinch of salt in that particular corner now, and it's probably a, a four foot deep pile we need to wade through. But Marvel are apparently developing a TV series called Adventures Interfere, with the idea that it will feature their more monstrous supernatural characters, and clearly. Two that spring to mind from that are Man-Thing, who we've seen on screen, yeah. and Werewolf by Night. Now, take it with some huge grains of salt, but it seems to be this idea that Marvel are maybe going to focus a little bit more on TV and only do one or two films a year. That's a rumour. What isn't a rumour, though, is that Echo, after all its slating, all its slamming, has got some pretty good positive reviews. And there's one show that everybody wrote off. Yeah. Female lead, maybe, something to do with it. There were certain names on Twitter who I won't mention, who were, nobody wants this, why focus on this character? Nobody cares about this character. Where did this, this character's comic books always fail? But yeah, it was female-led project, so of course they didn't want it. But sometimes you don't want 
a really popular character to be able to tell a good story with because you're not bogged down by the lore that the general public all know already. With Echo, they've had a chance to really grow this character for the cinematic for the cinematic universe. Even though it's the TV version, it's the cinematic universe of Marvel. And it gives them a chance to explore different avenues of the character that the comic book hasn't tapped into. Can't wait for this because it, it, this is the basic reset grounding for Marvel. This is them saying what they did on the Netflix shows, this is what we can do and we're going to use this character to start the ball rolling and bring Kingpin back into it and we've got Daredevil coming up. So this always had potential for those people who are open-minded enough to not just go, females, ugh! This always had some potential and I can't wait and I'm glad to see that it's being embraced by the critical world. And we'll see that show when it lands in January. few short weeks. As for other aspects of the dark world of Marvel, Mayor Shara Ali has spoke with EW this week and broke his silence on the creative issues around the Blade movie and saying he's encouraged by what he's currently seeing. Which is anything at this stage with a bit of luck. He was basically asked, what's happened? Where's the film? And he responded with, we're working on it. That's the best I can tell you. I'm really encouraged with the direction of the project. I think we'll be back at it relatively soon. I'm sincerely encouraged in terms of where things are and who's on board and who's leading the way as far as the writing of the script and the directing and all that. So that's the extent of to what I can tell you. Uh, we do know that Michael Starbury and True Detective creator Nick Pizzolato are the most recent names that have been attached to the script, uh, who took over from Logan writer Michael Green. Yen Demange, who gave us 71 Lovecraft Country, still remains sat in the director's chair for what was hoping to be an R-rated film once it finally goes into production. As for the rumours and gossip for people calling the end of the MCU and that Marvel are definitely going to be bringing back Robert Downey Jr. to fix things, well, Kevin Feige has shot down any rumours to do with Robert Downey Jr. returning after his emotional farewell at the end of Endgame. In Feige's words, we're going to keep that moment and not touch that moment again. We all worked very hard for many years to get that and we would never want to magically undo it in any way. So... It's unlikely that Robbie Downey Jr. would want to come back because he said goodbye to that character. But Feige has basically said, we said goodbye to characters. We're not undoing it like they do in the comics. Moving from Marvel over to other Disney properties. Uh, good news for Pixar, kind of, that the overlooked films Soul, Luca and Turning Red that went straight onto Disney+, Plus, avoiding cinema releasing, causing a lot of negativity from fan bases and critics saying that these films should be celebrated on screen. And Pixar people themselves, if you remember on, yep. the animators at Pixar were really unhappy and felt they were being targeted. Well, Disney are looking at the early part of next year when a lot of films, have, as we've mentioned in the past, have shifted due to the strike actions that delayed productions this year. And they're taking advantage of those quieter moments to release all three of them on the big screen. So Soul will get released in January. January the 12th is when the planning. Uh, Turning Red will arrive on February the 9th. And in March, on March the 22nd, Luca will land, giving all three of them a chance to get appreciated on the big screen and maybe get that wider audience. Whether they'll do much remains to be seen because I'm just curious as to whether people are just going to go, well, it's on TV. Why should I bother? But... Our cinema itself, whenever we show older films that you can watch on streaming, we do quite well on them. So there's always some people who will want to lap it up. But whether a family audience will lap up Pixar on the big screen, I'd like to say yes. I'd like them to get a good turnout and prove that Disney made a huge mistake in the first place by just dumping them onto TV. Emily Blunt said way back in August that she's still interested in making a sequel to the now cult classic Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow, or as it's been referred to, Live, Die, Repeat. 
Uh, and the sequel would be entitled Live, Die, Repeat and Repeat. Ever since 2015, director Doug Lyman, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have spoken at various times about getting a sequel off the ground. And it seems that because of the sequel's complicated uh, status, getting the originals all back together, Warners are now thinking of turning this particular project into a TV series. You could put it as a pinch of salt for now, mm -hmm. but that's where they want to go with this. They've expressed an interest in taking the property as a television series instead of developing it into a sequel movie. Tron Aries has officially started production and shooting again. Uh, Norwegian filmmaker Joachim Ronig, who gave us Contiki and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell, Mo Tell No Tales, posted on Instagram this week with a photo of a table read ahead of filming kicking off and says in his post, we are back and I'm so happy to see you all made it through the break. Thank you for riding it out. I can't wait to start shooting a movie with you guys. Tronwoods. And kudos to him for Tronwoods, because that is fantastic bit of wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> the film still has to, yet to set a release date, but now that it's going into production, we should start to hear some buzz after the new year as to plans for release on a third Tron movie. After all, it just seems like every decade and a half, two decades, we'll get a Tron movie. And this is how I want to live the rest of my life. And on the subject of third sequels, Maleficent 3 appears to be at the works at Disney, according to a new report for the Wall Street Journal. The news came as part of a profile piece on Oscar-winning actress Angelina Jolie, who appeared to hint at potential retirement from the acting world in the future. But the article then went on to list five projects that are in the works, with Maleficent 3 being one of them. The other four are Kung Fu Panda 4, which is due in March, uh, Maria Callas' biopic, uh, Halle Berry co-starring spy film Maud vs. Maud and the pianist with ALS drama Every Note Played. Jolie was last seen on screen in 2021's Eternals and Taylor Sheridan's Those Who Wish Me Dead. Andy, did you see the story that appeared across the airwaves this week about a bedtime story read by James Stewart? I didn't. Well, apparently, if you want to hear said bedtime story, you can do so as it's a downloadable app. But the voice has been created with AI. And this is opening up many, many debates as to whether an actor should be posthumously used as a part of entertainment without any consent from the family. Now, if you get to listen to it, it's quite interesting. It sounds like it was recorded back in the 40s. And as we know, when creating AI, they take... Andy, tell me the technical bits. <laughs> well... In layman's terms, the AIs basically scan for any existing footage, content, etc. So in this case, the audio. So it uses various audio clips in order to get a feel for the nature of that person's voice. So it can emulate it as best as it can. It's the same as any anyone like playing about with sound editing and trying to make someone else sound like something else. It's similar to that, except it's all done with AIs. It uses algorithms to pick up patterns and inflections in voice. So with, with us two, if, if AIs started replacing us, they'd be saying, and so, and so, or erms <laughs> a lot. Because that's our tags. And that's what it pays attention to. It, it goes for like when people pause, when people raise the voice, when people lower the voice, it picks up on your typical conversational aspects and then emulates it as best as we can. This is a technology that has been developing over the decades more and more. And now it's to the scary point that it's almost perfect. It's out now if you want to hear James Stewart. Why not read a bedtime story? Morally, I'm, I'm not sure what I 
think mm. about it. This is called The Calm, and the story audio was created in conjunction with a Ukrainian voice cloning company using samples from the late actor's voice. Thanks, I guess, to the power of AI, the late It's a Wonderful Life actor, who died 26 years ago, is voicing this new Christmas bedtime story available on the Calm app. It's a wonderful, sleepy story. But I'm still not sure moralistically yeah. whether I agree with it. I have heard a clip from it and, it, and it starts with, well, hello, I'm James Stewart, but well, you can call me Jimmy. Check it out if you're interested. Let us know your thoughts. Rattle through of a couple of quick bits of news. So the Minecraft movie has now cast Emma Myers, who broke out in Wednesday on Netflix playing roommate Enid Sinclair in the series. That means that she's going to be joining the already established cast for the Minecraft movie of Jason Momoa, Danielle Brooks, and Sebastian Eugene Hansen. It's a feature film adaptation of the insanely popular sandbox video game. I don't know where they're going with the story, but they have made some Minecraft story-based games that they could draw upon that kind of aspect. Dune 2 is still yet to arrive in March, but Villeneuve has confirmed that he has already finished the script for the third Dune film, which will be Dune Messiah. In his words, the screenplay is pretty much finished, but not finished. It will take a little time. There's a dream of making a third movie. It would make absolutely sense to me. I don't know exactly when I'll go back to Arrakis. I might make a detour before just to go away from the sun for my own mental sanity. I might do something in between, but my dream would be to go one last time to this planet that I love. And he said from day one on shooting of the first film, he'd want to make it a trilogy and do up to the end of June Messiah because after June Messiah it gets a bit silly so three films to tell Paul Atreides story would be perfect there was a poster drop for the new Alex Garland film Civil War from A24 and it looks impressive if you've not had a chance to check it out do so it's online which is basically the torch at the top of the Statue of Liberty guarded by some very almost futuristic looking soldiers. It gives the impression, and it is only an impression from me, that this is some science fiction sort of thing. You maybe expect that with Alex Garland, or is it a twisted reality? Who knows? But Alex Garland always does deliver. J.K. Simmons has joined the cast of Jorah number 12 for Clint Eastwood. Oh, well, I'm in then. I'm in. Um, Nicholas Holt is in the lead role as a Jorah who realises he's responsible for killing the victim of a case and must work to sway the verdict for the innocent accused whilst avoiding incriminating himself. Sounds like a great concept. And this is allegedly going to be Clint Eastwood's last film that he directs. But it already has a stacked cast with names like Tony Collette, Kiefer Sutherland, Leslie Bibb, Zoe Dutch. Wow, this is going to be a great, great final outing for Eastwood. Uh, Twisted Metal has been renewed for season two. The first season still has to land in the UK for audiences over here. But it's an absolute treat for fans of the game and also fans of just jokey post-apocalyptic nonsense. And I'm a fan of both. I'm happy to see that we're going to be getting another selection of episodes. And we've had a bit more news on the Oceans prequel. We reported earlier in the year that Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are going to team up for a new Ocean's Eleven film, which is going to be set back in 1962 in Monte Carlo. Well, we now have heard from a new report at Showbiz 411 that it's going by the title Oceans, and the pair are actually going to be playing the parents of George Clooney's Danny and Sandra Bullock's Debbie Ocean characters. This film will set up the more modern set Ocean's Eleven trilogy and Ocean's Eight. Filming was set to begin mid-year, but the actor strike halted that, so it's not clear when it's going to resume production. I am so down for some Ocean's heist action with Robbie and Gosling. We have some trailer drops of note, the first one being Bob Marley One Love trailer, which sees Kingsley Ben-Adir 
become the reggae superstar. The film is directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green. We had the Godzilla X Kong The New Empire trailer, which looks absolutely bonkers. Wouldn't expect anything less. We've got Godzilla Minus One landing at cinemas next week in the UK. It's already doing well internationally. And that's a more traditional Godzilla where the focus is on humanity and Godzilla is this presence that just destroys that they can't stop. Godzilla X Kong is monsters versus monsters versus monsters. Loads of giant apes, a great big giant ape, a little child ape. It's it's just mental. And I can't wait because that's what I want. I want two different Godzilla franchises. I want the serious one. And they don't want the bonkers stuff because this is what's great about Godzilla and kaiju movies is you can deliver any kind of film, be it a serious horror, a political analogy or an all out rollicking action fest. And they can all work for what they are. At the complete different end of the spectrum, we've got Dan Levy's trailer for Good Grief. Dan Levy was fantastic as not only writer, but one of the stars of Schitt's Creek. Uh, struggles with loss in that particular trailer. TV wise, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Got its first trailer this week. Starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine as the fake married spies uh, adaptation of the movie that starred Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And this isn't the first time there's been a, uh, a Mr. and Mrs. Smith TV series. No, but this one looks like it. This one looks like it's not going to step too much on the toes of the film and it's going to have its own energy. And most of that energy is being brought by Donald Glover, who is just marvellous in that trailer and straight away made me go. Top of my radar. Over at Netflix, uh, Michelle Yeo, who I watched yesterday in A Haunting in Venice. Uh, she stars in The Brother's Son, a martial arts Netflix series in which she heads a crime family. There's been a little bit of footage from HBO's Penguin TV series, which was revealed in a HBO teaser, and heading over to the world of games. And it's not a film, and it's not TV, but damn, we got the trailer for Grand Theft Auto 6 this week. and. Boy, 2025 is going to be amazing because the, we, we know that Rockstar don't tend to skimp with the trailers, but they don't cheat with the trailers. Other companies will do like, oh, here's what the graphics will look like. The game comes out and it's nothing like it. and They've just done pre-rendered stuff. But Rockstar don't tend to do that. So if they're not doing that this time, this game is going to look amazing. The depictions of the fake Florida that it's set in are absolutely perfect. And there's loads of images online of people comparing the real life locations with uh, what it inspired in the game. And it's just beautiful. Grand Theft Auto 6, those gamers out there who are as mad about like the Grand Theft Auto series as I am. That trailer's amazing, isn't it, guys? Another little burst of quick news. So Ryan Reynolds and Channing Tatum are planning to team up in a action comedy called Calamity Hustle, which is in a major bidding war between Warner Brothers, Netflix and Amazon at the moment. Um, the story follows a down and look former Los Angeles detective turned private investigator who, after being shaken down by a vicious crime lord, must track down his estranged brother who's responsible for interfering with a diamond heist. Sounds like it could be fun. And for another pairing that might be good, Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale are going to reunite with American Hustle producer Chuck Roven and writer Eric Warren Singer for Best of Enemies for Atlas Entertainment, which is an adaptation of Eric Desenhall and Gus Russo's book, Best of Enemies, The Last Great Spy Story of the Cold War. It's a real-life Cold War drama following a CIA case officer, Jack Platt, and KGB agent, Jenedy Vasilenko, telling that era of Cold War animosity and people who become unlikely friends during it. This could be a great little project. And we're not going to go through the full list, but the rundown of the shortlist for the Oscars Best Effects category. 
okay. was released this week. It's controversial, isn't it? Let's just say it's controversial. Yeah, this is about 20 different films that are listed on there. It's caused some controversy because there's one notable omission and one notable entry in here. So when you say best effects in films this year, immediately at the top of your mind, you do not think of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Well, that's been shortlisted. However, one film that got a lot of praise for its avoidance of CGI and keeping things practical has been completely overlooked. And that's one of the biggest films of this year, Oppenheimer. Which was all done done practically. There was zero CGI in it, from what I remember reading at the time. Yeah, it's extremely strange how that's being completely left off the groupings when there's a lot of CGI heavy ones in here that the CGI wasn't always great and yet the one film that stuck to practical effects and should have been recognised has been overlooked Oscars what are you doing? Uh, That folks that's just about it for the news but before we go and it kind of came out of nowhere uh, and and a very sad loss which was the passing of Ryan O'Neill who passed away on the 8th at the age of 82. Ryan O'Neill was a tour de force in the 70s as being one of uh, one of those actors who could basically turn his hand to everything and had appeared in, in films that I would class as some of my all-time favourite movies. Born in Los Angeles, he was trained as an amateur boxer before beginning a career as an actor. He had remarkable good looks, sprung to fame for Love Story and, and so many. Paper Moon, The Driver, Barry Lyndon. Uh, and, and a favourite, which I don't think anyone's ever really heard of, an early Walter Hill written film, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, because he is so genuinely charming. He had an ease on screen to put aside the great looks. He just had a, that star quality that made him the huge star that he was. But his career didn't shine too much after the 80s. Yes, he still uh, made appearances in TV, but he, he didn't have the career longevity that he really deserved. That 70s era for him was just a golden era for films. Yeah, it, Love Story, Wild Rovers, What's Up Doc, Thief He Came to Dinner, Paper Moon, Barry Lyndon, Bridge Too Far. Bridge Too Far, yeah. The Driver, Oliver's Story, The Main Events. What a run in a 10-year period. But then personal issues, addictions and instabilities offset basically crippled his career in the 80s and he, he still got like you said support roles popping up here there and everywhere in films such as fever pitch tough guys don't dance etc but he never really got that star power back because of what happened off screen on tv most recently, between 2006 and 2017, he played the recurring character of Max Keenan in Bones for 24 episodes. But generally, yeah, he will be rem- fondly remembered for that huge era that he had where he was nominated for war- awards here, there and everywhere. A sad passing. Absolutely. A- a- end, of a- end of an era, really, because he is one of those those stars that, that made that era. And, and I've mentioned this many times on the show, 60s, 70s cinema. I, I think has, has never been beaten. We've never lived through a time which, which has been as varied where you've got grown-up films. If you need to check out anything by Ryan O'Neill, and, and the list is, is huge, I would highly suggest Peter Bodanovich's Paper Moon because it is, is absolutely mm. brilliant. Kubrick's uh, Barry Lyndon, uh, so many. Uh, Love Story because it is one of those films which just transcends just being a movie. But, yeah. but please, as, as a tribute to, to a, a great actor and a great star, I would highly suggest you check something out. And that, folks, that's the news. 
enjoying the show? We'd certainly hope so. And if you want to help Andy out by giving us a little bit of a Christmas gift, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. Because what we're hoping to do is to really boost those listening figures that gives us the opportunity to do even more with the show. I'm thinking world domination in 2025. So you've, you've got a year to do that. Please hit the subscription button and leave a like. You can also get in touch with us, share your thoughts on films or anything film or entertainment related over on social media platforms, search for film file UK. We're on pretty much all the main ones, or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. We're happy to hear anything you want to bring to the table, any deep dive suggestions, any picks from this year that you feel that we should have watched, should have reviewed that we didn't get round to fire them over guys. We're always happy to hear from you. And now it's time for this week's festive deep dive. In this week's festive deep dive, we're going to tell you about, for some, it might be the top of the Christmas stocking, for others, maybe the bottom, as we're talking about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, came out in 1989, and it stars Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, and Randy Quaid. To be jolly, la 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 After vacationing across America and throughout Europe... Take it, Russ! This holiday season, the Griswolds are going to play it safe. Clark, we're stuck under a truck! Oops. They're staying at home. I give you the Griswold family Christmas tree. Hope you're not getting sap all over your sweater, Clark. All Clark wants is a quiet, old-fashioned Christmas. Sorry. Got a little knot here. Do work on that. What he's going to get is the gift that keeps on living. Merry Christmas. His family. We didn't come to impose. <laughs> oh, hell, there's plenty of room. Do you sleep with your brother? Do you know how sick and twisted that is, Mom? Well, I'm sleeping with your father. Have you got a kiss for me? <laughs> eh, you better take a rain check on that, Art. He's got a lip fungus they ain't identified yet. But no holiday could ever be more deeply touching. We were gonna call, but... Eddie wanted to make it a surprise. If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. The story is a simple one. We return to the Griswold family, in particular Clark, played by one of the comedy greats for me, Chevy Chase, as he attempts to get Christmas ready for his in-laws coming over. And when they do, it's not much of a vacation. That pretty much sums it up. This is a film that was based on John Hughes's short story, Christmas 59, that was published in National Lampoon magazine. And it's a typical hyper Griswold Christmas tale. Much as last week when we spoke about a Christmas story, and that is a series of vignettes around the festive period. This is the same. It's all festive themed vignettes about the chaos that Christmas brings to a family that's not wealthy. And it's how the father of the family Chevy Chase's um, Clark tries his best to do what is right for his family and making their Christmas the best ever. In the same way that we'd already seen him trying to do the perfect holidays in two previous vacation films. And it's because of the love that I have for these characters from those first two vacation films that this film is the perfect Christmas movie for me because I love the explosive chaos of Chevy Chase's Clark Griswold, who can never really get anything right, but still soldiers on and still tries to stay cheerful. 
but he loses his rag in this film. And I love it when he loses his rag because he loses his rag because he's struggling for money and he's been relying on that Christmas bonus. And then his boss has decided to pull the Christmas bonus at the last minute. This is everything that I love and hate about Christmas shown on screen in a perfect way for someone. <laughs> it's a more who can cynical act- approach, isn't it, Andy? It is. It's perfect for me because whilst it does celebrate Christmas overall, and it's all about the bringing of the family together and ignore all the lights, ignore all the gloss, ignore all, all the food, etc. If you can't get that right, as long as the family are all together, that's what really matters. And that's the underlying message in this. And that's how I feel about Christmas. I don't care about all the flashiness. I don't care about all this. It's just about bringing the family together. But you always try to do the best Christmas you can, no matter what resources you've got. And Clark Griswold is... We've <laughs> referring back to previous episodes again. One of our questions of the week was when you see yourselves reflected in characters on screen. And I see myself in Clark Griswold so often, for good <laughs> and for bad. I mean, <laughs> I am that kind of dad. I am that dad who will try his best and try to be good-natured, but will keep making mistakes, but will soldier on and still keep the family unit, no matter how dysfunctional it is, together. And throwing that into a Christmas setting is perfect. I, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I I, I love John Hughes. I think John Hughes was a, a, a writer who wrote from the heart. I don't always like all of his movies, but I always liked what he tried to do. Some of my all-time favourite movies are, are John Hughes movies. He had a very distinctive voice. I love Chevy Chase. I know Chevy Chase can be problematic. The first Fletch film in particular, I think, is, is his tour de force. Caddyshack is great in. Uh, and I enjoyed him, especially in the first National Lampoon um, vacation movie, which I thought was brilliant and can watch time and time again. Second one, not so much. But the third one, I, I do enjoy it. I, I don't love it. It's not a perennial favourite. If it's on TV, we'll watch it. And I think it's one of those films that I've watched at, at various places to start it. It might have been on for 10 minutes. It might have been on for half an hour. And, and I'll pick it up and enjoy it because I I like that family. I like Beverly D'Angelo. I think she's much underrated in these films because I think she's the heart of the films. Yeah. And, and I love Chevy Chase. This one I, I just get by with. I think it's, it's perfectly adequate. There's nothing I, I love about it, but there's nothing I really dislike about it apart from the fact that the films got sillier and sillier as they went on. But the fact that John Hughes returned and he said himself, the studio came to him and begged him for another one. And he only agreed because it, it was, he had this story, the one that Andy mentioned, the Christmas 59. And those films have become a little more than Chevy Chase vehicles. But he got that story and he and he wanted to invest some time in it. Initially, Chris Columbus was to direct, but due to, shall we say, a clash between him and Chase, Columbus left the film, uh, was replaced by Jeremiah S. Chechik, who incidentally went on to do the Avengers film, the notorious Avengers film, not the Marvel one, folks. The John Steed Avengers. The John Steed one, yes. And uh, Hughes eventually gave Columbus the script to Home Alone, and that is another legend. But you know what? It's it's just totally inoffensive, and I will watch it. It's not perfect. It's it's enjoyable, and it, and it passes an hour, and that's the, probably the best I can get. There are plenty of good laughs in it. There are nice little scenes in it. Chevy Chase broods perfectly. I think I've had too much of Randy Quaid by the time we get to this film. But it's just a, it's, it's it's one of those little Christmas treats that, you know, if you have too much of it, you feel a little bit overstuffed by it. Yeah, I can see that. But I'm happy to be overstuffed by this at least once every year. I think it is. This is Chevy. I mean, Chevy Chase as Clark Griswold over the series of films is just immensely, hilariously, sardonically funny. 
And apparently Chase improvised a lot of his lines for this one. And you kind of get that because it feels at times that he's riffing on ideas. The scene when he's ranting about his boss and calling him all kinds of names, he improvised around it. But apparently all the all the members of the cast had a name hung around their neck for him to riff on. So like a different insult, he'd look around them and like see a different insult and then just start playing around that idea. And I think that adds to the energy of it because Chevy Chase, despite all his problems that he has in the real world and how controversial he can be opinion wise, he's genuinely a funny guy. Yes. Beverly D'Angelo, like you said, she's marvellous throughout these films. She is the heart of the Griswold family. I love the fact that it's become a running joke by this point as well, that the kids, Audrey and Russ, are played by different cast members every film and this continued on to the next film vegas vacation that they were replaced again because in this one we get juliette lewis and johnny galecki we'd already had dana baron and dana hill playing audrey in previous films and we had anthony michael hall and jason lively in previous films it just becomes a running joke that their kids just keep changing and they don't even get replaced by someone who looks like the original actor it's blatant changing and i can't help but think that this is a deliberate stab at various soap operas of the time or like sitcoms that kept doing this and replacing cast members thinking that no one would notice. And I think there's been a deliberate National Lampoon thing to just go, let's just keep replacing them. Like you say, Randy Quaid can be a bit much. You can either love him or hate him. I think he just about sits well within this because he brings a bit more a bit more chaos of the unwanted family that you didn't really expect to turn up and turns up out the blue because it's Christmas and they should all come together. I do like the callbacks that it has, though. There's callbacks to the previous vacation films. Randy Quaid's cousin Eddie is wearing the shoes that Clark gifted him in the first film. I don't remember that. And there's also the line with Russ finishing the film off saying, I told you we should have gone to Hawaii, which is a callback to him saying that they should go to Hawaii in the very first film, as well as there's the Wally World mugs that they're drinking the eggnog out of. There's loads of little, for fans of the Vacation series, there's loads of little nods and reference. And I'm a huge fan of the Vacation series. I will never tire of watching them. Even the latter films, they kind of got a bit drawn out and a bit weaker. I've still got some love for. Maybe not Christmas Vacation 2, which Chevy Chase was nothing to do with, and it was straight to DVD release. But Vegas Vacation, and I've even got love for the more recent Vacation, which was basically picking up on Russ as as an adult, trying to do his best for his family. But Christmas Vacation, this is my festive film. This is everything that I see Christmas as. This is the chaos. This is the frantically trying to get the best presents, trying to balance the budget, but going over budget because you think you'll be able to make it up at some point. And then everything's just kind of going wrong and you just have to soldier on because you need to have the family together and you have that rant Like Chevy Chase does, he has that rant to get it all off his chest and then they celebrate Christmas. This is perfect Christmas. I'm not saying that I I don't like it at all. Don't (laughs) get me wrong, dear listeners. Uh, It's just not my go-to Christmas film. But I said, if it's on TV, then I'll always, maybe even sneakily, switch channels and drop into it. Andy, if we want to watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where can we find it? I believe it's currently showing on Sky Movies and Now TV. Check it out. Add it to your Christmas list. And we'll be back next week with another festive deep dive. What have Andy and I got to see to review for you this week? Well, Andy and I have both got a bit of Wonka. They say the very best chocolate comes from the gallery gourmet. We should go, Emma. When you're older, come with me. Good luck, Willie! And you'll be... Here we go, Mama. Every good thing in our world 
started with a dream. When you do share chocolate with the world, I'll be right there beside you. This is a prequel. I wouldn't say so much to the Johnny Depp movie, but certainly to the classic Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Armed with nothing more than a hat full of dreams, a young chocolatier, Willy Wonka, manages to change the world and fulfill his dreams in spectacular fashion. If you can say anything at all about this film, you can say that it's sumptuous. A delight of colour, charm, set pieces, songs. No, I didn't know this film was a musical going in. And I've got to put that down to director Paul King. He responsible for the, well, what can you say, sublime Paddington films. Yes. And yet, for all that for me, I think it was a chocolate bite too far. It captures all of King's uh, trademarks box of delights, which he always brings to the screen. Straightforward storytelling approach combined with agile gymnastics. It's always disarmingly cheerful. There is a kind of handmade quality to all of his films. And there's always a huge degree of love. And this works for the most part for me perfectly well. And a lot of that is down to Timothy Chalamet's uh, portrayal of Wonka, which is just one of pure delight and innocence. But there's something missing out of this ingredients, and I can't quite put my finger on it. So as you say, this is directed by Paul King. He co-wrote it with Simon Farnaby, who he co-wrote Paddington 2 alongside. And you can feel the, the Farnaby touch within this film. To give a brief synopsis of where the story goes, uh, Willy Wonka arrives back in England after serving aboard a ship as a cook to gain passage home and has ambition to become a world-famous chocolatier, but finds that Slugworth, Prodnose and Fickle Gruber have a kind of cartel on the industry that stops anyone else from challenging them while they rake in all the money by having exclusivity on it. At the same time, down on his looking money, he finds himself at the mercy of corrupt boarding home owner, Mrs. Scrubbit. With the help of Noodle, another victim of Scrubbit's contract, he sets about bringing his magical treats to the world. But who is the mysterious small orange man that seems to be after him? There's a lot of elements on play in here. But at the same time, I think you commented as you were leaving that it felt very slight. And I have to agree that while there's a lot of elements in there, it doesn't feel that it's bogged down. It doesn't feel that it delves into anything in particular. It just carries through. The film opens with a song, which is playful, energetic and charming. It, it delighted me more than any chocolatey street could. I found that the energy at which it moved from scene to scene with grace, sometimes pantomime charm, touched my heart in quite a good way. The songs are a mixed bag, but generally I found them quite toe-tappingly beautiful. Yeah, the songs were delivered by Divine Comedy's Neil Hannon, and they have that lovely wordplay that, that mm. Hannon used to bring to all of his songs and to all of his, his, his repertoire. Who can forget National Express? But I did find that there was nothing that I'm singing afterwards apart from when they reprised the classic Anthony Newby song. I felt that Neil Hannon's new songs kind of emulated the musical charm of that early 70s outing. And over time, I think over rewatches, they'll become more memorable. But it is the nods back to those earlier songs. Joby Talbot, who composed the score, beautifully references a few moments from the 1970s film, especially Pure Imagination, which is an ongoing theme throughout, and also the Umpa Lumpa song, which as soon as he plays that little flute and starts singing, you know where it's going, and it's a joy. And it reminds you, in a way, of how good the music was in that original version. I'm glad that they've built around it. I'm glad that it's created lots of new things. I have to admit it does kind of rely on nostalgia for 
that Gene Wilder version a little too much to not be able to stand on its own as a film. But that didn't stop me from just enjoying it throughout. And I think what I enjoyed the most was the mixture of cast. I mean, what a cast. No matter how small or large the roles, everyone who pops up on screen had me having a big beaming smile on my face, be it Sally Hawkins in a very brief appearance, Rowan Atkinson, Keegan-Michael Key, Matt Lucas, Matthew Bainton, Tom Davis, Olivia Coleman was magnificent, Natasha Rothwell, and even Farnaby himself, popping up in a scene that made it made both of us chuckle it definitely made both of us chuckle because we were sat next to each other and we both giggled at farnaby's character popping up a couple of times is that was that the night watchman yes that's so which i think was was scene stealing to be perfectly <laughs> honest I, I thought that was one of the most scene stealing scenes that as you said uh, gets reprised it's that good uh, i i like chalamet in it uh, and i think that he brings something different it's it's closer in nature to Gene Wilder than it is to Johnny Depp's. I think it's a fresh face take on the central character. Mm. There's more of a sort of uh, a wry innocence to him. He's, he's certainly light-footed and very, very spry. What I, I am missing, and I think if there was to be a sequel, I'd like to see more of the misanthropic version of the character that, that certainly Gene Wilder had in it. And that sort of touch of cruelty that there is in Roald Dahl's creation that was certainly seen again in, in Wilder's version. But I, I enjoyed Chalamet's sort of man-child of, approach to it and the sort of adorable sense of optimism that runs throughout the film. Hugh Grant as an Oompa has to be one of the... casting. What, what a scene-stealing little man he is. It's interesting that the film's been heavily marketed around Hugh Grant being an Oompa but he's not on screen very much but his presence is felt throughout the whole thing. He's charmingly great, witty, snipey, absolutely perfect placing of a big name in a small role, literally. Overall, I did enjoy it. I didn't love it, but I did enjoy it. And I think that's down to Paul King's take on this particular story. It's got well-written songs that while they don't, they don't become sort of earworms, they don't feel pop produced in the same way that the soundtrack did to Wish, yeah. which I, I, again, thought were decent songs, but they felt like they were production line as opposed to having any heart to it. This film doesn't try to make them contemporary. Yeah, I'll agree with you. Like I said, it re reflects the music of like earlier decades of the show tunes, whereas Wish tries to be like hip hop and hip and cool with the kids. This feels like it's a proper musical. I found it delicious, delightful, and definitely want to see this December. I found it giddy and ingenious, but rather slight. It was though the soft centers weren't as filled as they should be, but there was just a little bit at times too much sugar on display and not enough filling, but I did enjoy it. That takes us from Wonka to where, Andy? Shall we go to a Sky original? Shall we go to Genie? If we must. So, yes, I watched a festive film, a Sky original, and a remake of a not-so-great Richard Curtis TV movie from the early 90s. Genie with Melissa McCarthy. Bernie. Hey. How you doing, man? Very badly. I'd missed my daughter's birthday. I'm gonna take Eve to my mom's. My wife left me, and then I got fired. I want you out today. That's when I happened upon this old antique jewelry box. And then I rubbed it. Oh, oh my God! Who are you? I am a genie. 
<laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Your wish is my command. Okay. I wish I had my very own camel. <laughs> if you're an actual genie, that explains the whole three wishes thing. Fairy tale stuff. Real genies, unlimited wishes. I wish I had large pizza, pepperoni, extra cheese. This is just a triangle of red bread. Go and try it. Wait an ever-loving minute. This is heaven. Genie is a remake of the 1991 television movie Burners and the Genie, which was written by Richard Curtis, who's adapted his own work for this new update. Focusing on Bernard, played by Papa Ezidu, a workaholic who neglects his family too much in the pursuit of promotion, the film starts with him missing another family occasion, his daughter's birthday, and having mislaid her present on his journey home, he dusts off an old jewellery box as her gift. After his wife and daughter have left, he begins cleaning the box, only to find that it contained a genie named Flora, played by Melissa McCarthy, who grants him wishes, no limit on how many. Seeing it as a way to get his family back and his life back on track, it sets about a chain of events that will show Bernard what's really important in life. Now, I revisited the original TV movie after watching this just to compare the two, as I had a recollection of finding the older version, which saw Lenny Henry as the genie and Alan Cumming as Bernard, quite enjoyable. However, with those rose-tinted specks of nostalgia taken off, the original version doesn't hold up well, and it only scores higher than this new version because it's shorter, and so it's a lot less painful to sit through. Not that this version is long. Running at just over 90 minutes, which is perhaps the perfect time for this kind of festive cheese, there is ample time for fun to be had, even if the fun is very fleeting. Credit where it's due, there were a handful of moments that raised a chuckle of a smile, but each of these moments were lifted directly from the older version, with the newer ideas never really landing. But, and I feel this needs mentioning given my usual stance on comedy roles, McCarthy actually pretty likeable throughout and she even brings a touch of heart to the film in perhaps one of the only additions to the story that does lend well her genie flora wants to live a normal life and while she enjoys granting wishes she never feels she can achieve her own dreams as a result this creates quite a touching dynamic in the latter half of the film between bernard and flora and mccarthy delivers her part well Sadly, nobody else does, with the exception of Alan Cumming, who returns here to play Bernard's sneering boss, Flaxman. Essidue lacks presence on screen, and there's no sense of bond between Bernard and his family around him to make you actually care for his outcome. It all feels a little flat at times, resulting in the only sparks of joy being when names such as Mark Moran and Louis Gussman pop up in small roles. Look, as far as festive tosh goes, and films tagged with the Sky Original brand, this isn't the worst. And if you want a simple slice of cheesy goodwill with some sporadic laughs, then maybe give it a shot. But everything that didn't work in the original version is still present. And some terrible direction choices from Sam Boyd, especially the serious overuse of the tilt-shift camera work for exterior shots of the city, which make transitions between scenes look jaw-droppingly awful, all hinder the flow. And despite McCarthy's best attempts, she can't compensate for having a co-star who seems to not really care at all. For a slice of festive nonsense, it's nothing memorable, but it's not terrible. Well, that was a surprise then. I never had much love for the original Lenny Henry version. No. So, uh, which I know has aged quite badly. So I, I have very, very little interest in, in seeing this at all. And that leads us to our final review, which is... Lands on a limited cinema release at the moment. We'll be coming to Netflix in the coming weeks. And that's Bradley Cooper's Maestro. Oh, well, it's uh, 12. No. <laughs> Six. No. Eight. Can you try, just 
call Maybe I should tree. stop and think for a second. You should stop and think, because I am sending it to you. 20. No. <laughs> so how long do we have to do this for? Well, we need to build up a very strong connection. at all. I'm thinking of a number. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Nine. No. Five. No, you have to think. <laughs> I'm, trying to... <laughs> I'm trying to. It's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. Bradley Cooper's second outing as director is a project that has been in the planning stage for a few years, having initially been planned as a feature for Martin Scorsese to work on before he stepped down to work on The Irishman, passing it over to Steven Spielberg, who considered directing before offering it to the attached star, Cooper, after a screening of his directorial debut, A Star Is Born. With the two heavyweights of cinema staying on as producers, Netflix then picked up the option and moved it swiftly into production. The film is a biopic of the composer Leonard Bernstein, played here by Cooper, which races over his rise to prominence and touches on moments of his career. But the primary focus is on the man himself and the relationship he has with his wife, Felicia Montalagre, played by the always divine Carrie Mulligan, showing how the pair remained connected despite Bernstein's many homosexual affairs over the years and his very exuberant lifestyle. This is a look at a complex marriage that touches on the almost destructive nature of Bernstein's emotions, but avoids coming over as sordid and crass, instead packing every moment with depth and textures of emotion as the composer's rise to fame impacts on his family life. The first thing that strikes as the film enters the first act is how technically brilliant Cooper is as a director. The early moments flashing back to Bernstein's initial chance at fame are shot in creative ways, with scenes melding into one another via single-take set switches, overhead shots of corridors being walked down to the new location, and a vibrant, energetic framing in beautiful black and white and box-like aspect ratios. Cooper already impressed in his first directing gig, but here he shows that he isn't simply going to churn out more of the same, and instead has grown his approach in creative and visually marvellous ways. Soundtracked by Bernstein's own compositions, it delivers a perfect mix of sound and vision that buzzes with electric energy. Cooper himself plays the part of Bernstein. He was attached to the project when it was still in planning stages for Spielberg, and he delivers a strikingly heartfelt portrayal of a complex man who maybe has too much love for one thing. The confident awkwardness of the man is handled well, and Cooper, under prosthetic makeup that caused some controversy in some quarters, stops being the actor and becomes the real character on screen. His voice, his stance, his gait, his whole presence inhabits the role and makes you believe in the person that you're watching on screen. With Carrie Mulligan alongside, in a moving and sometimes heartbreaking role, the screen lights up whenever the pair are on screen together. Sometimes it lights up with joy, sometimes with absolute sorrow. Mulligan always delivers in emotional roles, and here she truly shines. The rest of the cast have their parts to play, and all of them deliver well. 
from Maya Hawke as the eldest daughter, Jamie, who's the first to know of her father's more secret life, to Sarah Silverman as Bernstein's younger sister, Shirley, as well as Matt Bomer, Michael Urie, and others who play key figures in the composer's life. Whilst we don't get much of the professional life of Bernstein explored, key moments are touched on, but anyone wanting a blow-by-blow account of his most prominent works will be disappointed. What we do get is a deeply personal insight into an emotionally complex genius and the impact his heart's choices has on those who love him the most. And in doing so, the end result is a film clocking in at just over two hours that will entice, enrapture and engage with your own emotions throughout. I've always been, as you know, a a massive fan of West Side Story, so Leonard Bernstein, who I've seen plenty of documentaries about. I'm I'm intrigued to know about the life of the man outside of the composer, and this is high on my list of must-sees. So that's this week's reviews. What have we got coming up over the next week? And I know there's a film that you and I are desperate to see. At the cinemas... We've got Three Musketeers, Milady, which I am so got at the top of my list. I finally caught up with D'Artagnan and loved it. Absolutely loved it. I can't wait to see the second part of that story. Uh, Godzilla Minus One gets its cinema release this week, and hopefully we're going to get a chance to see that together. And Rebel Moon Part One, A Child of Fire, gets a very limited cinema release, as in the 70mm print at at the Prince Charles Theatre this coming weekend before it lands on Netflix the following week. Over on Now TV and Sky, Shazam Fury of the Gods. I had fun with it. Yeah, it was okay. I I remember having a lot of issues with it. Over on Netflix, Chicken Run Dawn of the Nuggets lands this week. On Amazon, I know you're excited for this, Reacher Season 2 lands. Yeah, big fan of the first season. On Disney+, Plus, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. You know what? I might revisit it. I'd want to revisit Indiana Jones. Apple TV+, Plus, The Family Plan, which is Mark Wahlberg in a true lies style of comedy action spy drama. And for the 16th and the 17th of this month only, and you mentioned it previously being something that you watch every year, a Charlie Brown Christmas is free to watch on on Apple TV Plus next weekend. Listen, I implore (laughs) you, watch it. It will bring a heart to your Christmas vacation. I Trust me. You can't beat a bit of Charlie Brown. But that's that's a decent roundup for this week. Hopefully, like I say, we'll both get to see Godzilla Minus One and possibly Three Musketeers, Milady, before next week's show. And that's it, folks. That's us done for this week's episode of The Film File. But before we go, and if you're a regular listener, you know what this means. It's neat things. Stuff that Andy and I have enjoyed uh, that we want to share with you, whether that's something that we've read, something that we've seen, you name it, we're going to tell you about it. And Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? Right. Well, my neat thing is Friends. Not the TV show. Oh, okay. I mean people. Real people real friends, and in particular, you. You there, sat on the other end of this conversation. Because over the past weeks, we've mentioned a few times about, you know, things that you always wanted as a kid and things that you never got. And I offhand mentioned that I had loads of Star Wars figures and I had the Millennium Falcon and I had an X-Wing and I had a Scout Walker, but I was always jealous because my mate had an at and I always wanted an at but never got one. That was the one Christmas present that got away. The one thing that I didn't get. And then this week, you surprised me by presenting me with your old <laughs> at <at-at. laughs> And it might have been just like, a, I'm getting this out of my house, but you don't know how much that means to me because you just taking that comment that I made 
of I always wanted an at-at and tapping into that to go, well, I can clear out some junk now and he's going to love it. And you won't, you cannot understand how much I love this at-at. <laughs> it's, it's on display oh, in, in our living room window. <laughs> it's, it's proudly on display. You say that we, you can't really toy, like play with it because the, the little piece is broken. You know what? I'm going to repair every bit of it and clean it up and touch it up because it's part of my childhood dreams have come true i've finally got an at-at i'm age 50 and i'm excited because i finally got my own at-at toy and that is such a neat thing that you picked up on that friends who know you so well that know that they can offload their rubbish on you and you will love it and lap it up so you lee are my neat thing this week no oh, well that bless you sir is absolutely absolutely made my week all i'm going to say to all you know not everyone can have a lee in their life but everyone's got someone likely in their life show your love for them appreciate them and let them know that they are so neat well <laughs> thank you I'm, I'm i'm you know what i'm like i'm genuinely touched in <laughs> if, if i could uh, if i could burst into tears on a show then you know i i, I cry at the drop of a hat well i, I can't beat it but I'm, I'm just going to tell you about a, a book that i've just finished because i think that's something i can tell you about I have an ongoing uh, love affair of the works of Stephen King, as you know, and I've read his latest, which is Holly, about a, well, an unlikely serial killer. It's a return to the Holly Gibney character who was first introduced in Mr. Mercedes. And due to the love that King has for this character, he's brought back Holly Gibney for now her starring role in, in this latest novel. Holly Gibney is someone who has anxieties. She's socially awkward. And we've seen her grow from this nervous woman child in the first Mr. Mercedes book to now running the Finders Keepers Detective Agency and has become a talented and insightful detective. In this book, she's investigating disappearances of a group of people from her hometown who just sort of fall off the map. Holly's brought into this as she investigates a new client, a woman who's lost her daughter. Being Stephen King, this isn't just a straightforward missing persons, as we are introduced to rather unique set of killers who are using their victims to help sustain their life by devouring them. I think one of the things that gets missed about Stephen King is he's an incredible wordsmith. He creates characters that, that engage. He creates a world which is engaging. And he has a, a masterful use of description that I think when you think of Stephen King, you think of the horror. But he's such a darn good writer that engages you right from the opening page. Yes, he does have a tendency to be overwordy. Yes, he does have a tendency to put probably too many pages in than is absolutely necessary. And he's always been awkward. And he's addressed this himself when it comes to how to end one of his books. But the love that he has for Holly Gibney shines through. This is a character that he cares about. And while the story purports to be the last in the series of Holly Gibney stories, I wouldn't be surprised if he brings her back. The novel's not so much a whodunit, but a why done it. And it moves between Holly in the present and the victims over the years. And it's set around COVID. So it gives King a wry opportunity to offer a political point of view for those which now seem very distant days. If you're a fan of Stephen King and if you've liked Holly Gibney, check out Holly. Uh, it should be on your Christmas list if you're a fan of either. And that, folks, well, that's us done for this week. And as we build to Christmas, I've got to realise that I've got to go out and start buying Christmas <laughs> presents. <laughs> 
I've got most of mine done already. There's only one that's oh, outstanding. Better than I am. And that's only because uh, that's only because the person who I've still got to buy for is impossible to buy for because I've got no idea what their likes or dislikes are. And, uh, you know, but I'm getting ready for Christmas. As you can, uh, anyone who watches this YouTube channel um, each week will see that <laughs> over the past month, uh, my facial features have been getting considerably more and more hairy. And I think um, I think I'm just about on track that by Christmas Eve, I'll be able to get on that sleigh and uh, ride around delivering presents at this race because uh, my beard's coming on quite nice. Uh, I've got my festive beard on. <laughs> it's interesting looking back on the YouTube channel over the past month or so and just seeing the gradual progression of my facial fun fungus. It's great. <laughs> we'll be back again next week. But before we go, Mom, this box is meowing. Because I've not thought of anything. I don't know what I want for Christmas. I don't know what I want. That Marvel book. I've got you a Christmas present. Oh, stop it. You've already given me an at, -at. <laughs> Talking of which, uh, did you get into trouble? <laughs> I had to explain. <laughs> she she looked at me with a, a disdainful look on her face and just accepted that it's now sat on the window ledge on proud display. <laughs> did you fix the leg? Uh, I popped it back in. It just keeps clicking in. Yeah. You can't play with it. No. Well. <laughs> well, you can you can get your little uh, little army men and put them inside. Is that a euphemism? A <laughs> it could always. Why am, I, why am I looking at your left nipple? Because you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have to pay for that. Uh, just, that just in case that does make the show, even on the outtakes. I just, want to, just <laughs> want to explain that Lee just tilted his camera down and I was just looking at his chest. <laughs> and what a chest. What a chest. So, did you see that thing I sent you on? Yeah. <laughs> Twitter. Well, you know what? I'm going to shout it out and I'm blocking this person. Uh, yeah. So, over on Twitter, uh, where we did our question of the week, and uh, this has happened from this account multiple times over the past couple of months. We've briefly referenced it a few times, but now I'm going to actually call them out. At GR Cinema Ticket, pretty much copies and pastes, word for words, our question of the week every week so that accounts getting blocked on twitter they'll have to find another way to find their questions that are so original that even the grammar is the same on a few of them dirty pool old boy dirty pool if you're going to if you think something's a great question rather than just regurgitate it why don't you quote tweet it and share it with your followers and then it becomes part of the huge engagement don't just steal stuff it's worse than comedians who steal other comedians' stuff. Stealing people's posts on Twitter. Disgraceful. Shocking behaviour. Anyway. Anyway, rant over. I don't know where to go with this. Shall I go for Please Don't Destroy the Treasure of Foggy Mountain or Genie? Uh, which, is, which has got the most <laughs> vitriol. <laughs> Genie will be more ranting. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Go for a full rant. <laughs> so... With I must stop going, and so it annoys me. It makes you want to run to the loo and pool a lot. No, I can't really say that. <laughs> so what of Andy and I? Hi. Hi. Oh, hi. 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 What of Andy and I got to see? I found it delicious, delightful, and definitely want to see this December. And I wanted to put the letter D in as many words there as possible. 